This is absolutely one of my favorite episodes. I mean, we've had so many amazing guests on the show, but I have to tell you, I was literally intently listening to every word that Jay Parvizi said today. He's just, he has such incredible wisdom. He's so well-respected as an international authority on uh, joint replacement. He's at the Rothman Institute. He started the Parvizi Surgical Innovation uh, uh, Corporation, which I love the concept of that, where he's providing counsel as an incubator model for doctors and other people that have amazing uh, medical ideas. It's just a tremendous show talking about a unique man who's really taken a lot of time away from his clinical practice to try and really help us do as well as we can to help influence the care of patients that he'll never meet. It's just exactly the type of people that we love having here on the Ortho Show. I know you're going to love it. Hashtag follow the throat. From Medical Media, this is The Ortho Show. Hello world, Dr. Scott Sigmund, your favorite opioid-sparing orthopedic surgeon here for another episode of The Ortho Show podcast, where we bring you the best of the best in the orthopedic space. We have uh, landed one of the biggest fish we could get, Dr. Jay Parvizi. We're so pleased to have you on, Jay. Jay is a full professor and vice chair of orthopedics at Jefferson, a partner professor at the Rothman Institute of Orthopedics in Philadelphia. He's the founder of the Parvizi Surgical Innovation, which I can't wait to talk about. Uh, and he's an orthopedic surgeon that specializes in hip and knee replacement. Jay, it is a pleasure to have you on. Thank you, Scott. It's, uh, it's my honor to be on. It's great. I think we saw each other at the Academy. We were probably at Ira Kirschenbaum's little cocktail party that he loves to throw, the godfather of orthopedics. And uh, we had a chance to talk and you were so gracious to be able to come on. So we really do appreciate it. So, you know, what we usually like to start with, Jay, is we like to sort of get our listeners to get a feel of, you know, who you are, where you're from. And, you know, where, you know, I know that you did your medical training in England. We'll talk about that. But from, you know, from a childhood perspective, when did you sort of know that, that medicine and orthopedics in particular was something you're going to be drawn to? Sure, Scott. I think uh, I've always wanted to be a doctor. And it started by getting exposed as a five-year-old to my grandfather who practiced in Iran. And I really can't remember anything other than being a doctor. But I always actually wanted to be a heart doctor, heart surgeon. And in fact, that's how I started my training. I left Iran after the revolution in 1982, arrived in England through various countries eventually, did my medical school in England. And I started actually doing my post-surgical training in England. Those days, they used to be called SHO and registrar training. And I was actually trained to be a cardiac surgeon. So I was training at Freeman Hospital in Newcastle. When one morning I was sitting there and uh, my uh, mentor at that time, uh, his name was Peter Hilton and John Dark, two good surgeons. Uh, I told them that I was interested in doing research and I wanted to go to Oxford, do a research molecular mechanism of mechanotransduction. And they said, why Oxford? Why not go to Mayo Clinic? Um, through their contacts, they sent me to Mayo Clinic, but the blood flow lab where I was going to be doing my uh, basic science research was actually in the orthopedics department. And that's where I met Dr. Bernie Mori, who really changed the course of my career. And uh, the rest is history. 
So, so I, you know, it's interesting. We do our research here at the Ortho Show because we like to make sure we know what's going on. So, you're, you know, you're a fellow of the Royal College of Surgeons in England. You did an entire registrar training in England. Is that correct? I did. Yeah, I was just one year out to be a senior registrar before I came out here to do my uh, research. Uh, that's amazing. So, so you come here thinking that you're going to be potentially a cardiothoracic, or a, I'm sorry, a cardiac uh, surgeon, and you meet Bernie Mori in the lab, and you decide. Uh, enough of this hard stuff. It's all about the bones for me. And I'm going to go into orthopedics. Yeah. Uh, he used to do, Bernie Mori uh, used to do Wednesday research meetings with the blood flow lab. And that's when I got introduced to him. I told him what my uh, plans were. I was, do, I was there for one year to do basic science research. I was actually looking at the transduction on how you stretch the endothelial cells and they put out a biological response, the Starling's law. And um, I told them that I was there for a year and I was going to leave. Obviously, we, you know, we hit it off and I actually left. But before leaving Mayo Clinic, I met my wife, who, had, who still happens to be my wife after 25 years. Fantastic. I went back to England and I started to work. And unfortunately, she couldn't find a job in England. So I had to call Bernie Mori and say, you know, that offer you gave me about me coming to the residency in orthopedics at Mayo Clinic, does that still stand? He said, let me look into it and I'll call you back. And uh, they did. They managed to create a uh, position for me in an orthopedic department to go through the full training. So I had to go through another full training at Mayo Clinic. I mean, that's unbelievable, though. That's a truly remarkable story. That does not happen. You know, in today's age, we've had a number of, of guests who are foreign trained, who eventually get to the States, and they they piecemeal together a couple of spots for a residency here, there, and then they do a fellowship, and then they do a third fellowship to get their five years. But to be able to jump into a full-on orthopedic residency, that was a great, great honor for you, I would imagine. Okay, I agree completely, Scott. Again, I've been very fortunate in my life to have incredible mentors and friends who have made this journey much smoother than it could have been. And, you know, we are very, very fortunate to be living in the U.S. And I love England because I obviously owe to England. I did my medical uh, training there. But uh, the training situation in Europe and the rest of the world is so different. And most of these young residents who are in incredibly competitive uh, trainings like orthopedics, they really, really need to appreciate the opportunity that they've been given because this is, this is an amazing country that's provided so much opportunity to so many of us. Yeah, no, that's uh, that could not be any more true, Jay. I mean, we just have some of the most amazing people that have been mentors and professors and who have helped to train, you know, just amazing orthopedic surgeons here, it's a great privilege here in the States to be able to do that. And, and kudos to you for figuring out a way and persevering to, to get that done. But so then you you decide you're, you're going to go back to Europe, right? You're going to do a joint replacement fellowship in Switzerland, which is where you got the, the, the knack for your arthroplasty. And was that, was how much, how, tell us about that year for sure. That was six months as part of uh, Hip Society slash Mueller Fellowship. And I was in uh, Bern, in Solospital in Bern. And I trained with uh, one of the giants in orthopedics called Reinhold Gans, who is the, uh, most people would know he's the person who described the pelvic osteotomy, Bernese or Gans osteotomy. That's for younger patients with dysplasia. I was there for six months with him. And uh, 
that again provided me with incredible opportunities to write some of the most important papers in my career. And um, as I was there during my fellowship, my wife joined me. And at the time she was six months pregnant. So we finished the fellowship, came back to Philadelphia. And, uh, and you joined the Rothman Institute in 2003, which I'd, I'd love to talk about that because, you know, the, the, the history of Rothman is really fascinating. And I don't think everybody really quite understands it. I don't even completely understand it. So, you know, you come in 2003, first of all, five years later, you're a full professor, you know, at Jefferson in five years. That's a very impressive track to get full professorship. So you were cranking out the papers and the, and the, and the articles and, and, and the books, et cetera. So, you know, again, that's amazing. And I, you know, I, I look at some of your colleagues now, like Joe Abood and, and Pete Sharkey and Asafilius and Sorena Namdari and Antonia Chen, who did a lot of work with, who's now back, who's up at the Brigham. I mean, just, just giants in, in, in orthopedics in, in the, in the landmark uh, information that they're creating. And, so tell me, what, what was the Rothman Institute like in 2003 when you came on board? Was it inside Jefferson at that time, or was it a standalone show? No, it, it was inside Jefferson. Dick was one of those incredible visionary men that he knew what he wanted, and he had a very, very uh, good uh, organizational skill. And uh, Dick himself would tell, tell you that he used to surround himself by incredibly talented and, and very clever and smart people who made that journey easier for him. So he basically wanted to have an academic and private practice together, the privademics. And it was probably one of the first in the country. So he struck a relationship with Thomas Jefferson University, where he would have access to residents and fellows, teaching and uh, academics. But at the same time, he wanted to be in control of destiny of uh, his own organization. He wanted to hire who he wanted to hire, which hospital he wanted to operate in, and et cetera. So Rodman Institute was created, I think, in 1997 or so. So I joined shortly. I was number 13 uh, for Rodman Institute. And now I think we have like 250, 280 of them, 80 uh, people. And honestly, Scott, that was like serendipity. I had actually already signed the contract to go to UCSF. And David Bradford was a great guy, very, very charming, very uh, uh, interesting gentleman. And he recruited me to UCSF. I signed the contract. I went there with my wife. We just couldn't find a place to live. And it was very, very difficult to find a place. So we decided to rent a place. And I said to her, before I really just make the final move. Let me go and meet with Dick Rothman. And it was an academy meeting in Dallas. It must have been either 2001 or 2002 in Dallas, whenever that academy meeting was. Met with him and Bill Hozak over breakfast. I fell in love with the guy. And I said, this is it. This is the person I want to go and work for. So I uh, called Dave Bradford, very, very apologetic. I told him, I'm so sorry, but I have decided to go to Philadelphia. And he understood. He was a good friend of Dick Rothman. He's a spine surgeon. Dick used to be a spine surgeon. So that's it. I landed here. And I tell you, my greatest, greatest mentor in life was Dick Rothman. My greatest friend was Dick Rothman. When I lost him, it was like losing a father. You know, I just love I just love hearing these stories because there's always there's always seems to be a common theme amongst 
you know, really established, you know, orthopedic surgeons, and it's about relationships. And it's the relationships that you've had in the process of your learning, you know, your mentors, your friends and colleagues. And then we all feel compelled to take what we've learned and then be able to pass that on as well. And so that's a, it's just an amazing story. And so you're number 13 in, you know, in 2003, uh, and now, I mean, you guys are in four states, you got 250 doctors. I mean, you know, the expansion uh, continues. And I mean, I think it was really fascinating that, that, that Dick came up with this concept of being able to continue to uh, have an academic role, but yet then allow a private practice to develop too, which then allows for control of your destiny in, in, in your work environment but also potentially for, for innovation and the ability to think outside the box and have opportunities outside of academic medicine that could help to sort of push. So I think that is a great segue to Parvizi Surgical Innovation. And I believe you established that in 2016, is that correct? Yeah, we registered in 2016 and actually got the company going in 2017. Uh, Dick was actually very instrumental in um, me moving in that direction. We were just a little frustrated with the pace of innovation in industry and some of the innovation in industry we didn't really identify with, you know, like the metal and metal, the modular femoral stem, and the list goes on. And, and also I had a bit of frustration uh, with Jefferson in terms of the intellectual property, where does it go, who negotiates that for you down the line, and uh, what happens to these grants, et cetera. So there was like a combination of things that just made making my life really miserable. And I went to see Dick. We had a coffee and I said, Dick, I want, to, I want us to create our own incubator. And I discussed that with him. And basically, Paravisi Surgical Innovation, PSI, is an incubator. We have members who come in with ideas. They will... We will then put our own funds and money together, take it through multiple de-risking steps, which includes getting a FDA approval process. And then at that point, we divest it and give it to the bigger industry that can then bring it to market. As you know, Scott, over the last few years, things have changed with industry is really into mostly in M&A, my merger and acquisition, then R&D. They're they really just want to see these small startup companies do all the work and then bring it to them. And then they buy them uh, and bring it to market. So it's good. It's a good synergy. It's a fantastic synergy, you know. Uh, that so, we so, so who's involved? I mean, because I, I, if I'm not mistaken, there's a bunch of docs that, and is it all Rothman people or just no, describe? Yeah. No, actually, you know what I did? I wrote to like 40 people, 40 people that are like-minded, that I consider them as innovators and entrepreneurs. And that was the first cycle or so-called the founding um, circle. 32 of them, and we each put some money together and we started the company. We went through another round uh, in 2019. And Ira, for example, you mentioned Ira's name earlier. You mentioned Serena Namdari's name. You know, these are some of the great guys that are part of PSI. And it's not all doctors either. Uh, you know, we have Mike West, like the CEO of, or ex-CEO of Rothman Institute. We have guys like David Kirschman, who's a neurosurgeon who's retired. Tony Diamond, some brilliant, brilliant businessmen and brilliant uh, other specialties too. We have uh, dermatology, anesthesia, urology, vascular surgery, internal medicine, uh, the list goes on. 
So these are people who want to basically take the innovation into their own hands, and they're not scared of investing their own money to, you know, to take things through the uh, de-risking stages. And we win some and we lose some, but we basically, this way we are controlling the pace and the speed at which we innovate and also choosing where to innovate and where not. So. Yeah, so it's interesting. So as an incubator model, you may have doctors that have a widget or an idea. They come to you, they present to the board, you guys, you know, take a look, you decide this is something that, you know, we're worth, you know, they throw the pitch at you, if you will, the pitch deck, and then you decide if you want to come on board. And then I, I suppose you can provide counsel, you can provide financing, you can provide resources that an individual may have a hard time doing on their own. So that's one pathway. Is that correct? That's exactly right. Yes. And then, and then it seems to me that you also believe uh, and identify technologies or companies or ideas that you think uh, are going to be beneficial to society. And for example, you know, you just made an investment into Precision OS with Danny Goyle, who's yep. a, a dear friend of ours from the Ortho Show as well. And he's, yeah, we can't uh, turn on the computer without seeing Danny's face these days. He's really, really doing fantastic. So tell us about that type of venture as well. Yeah, exactly. So we have a small venture arm. Uh, we identify companies that have similar mission as us, improving patient care, purely that mission. And we also have a little bit of a soft spot for other doctors that are innovating in this space, like Danny. And most of the companies we've invested in are either doctors or pretty close to. Um, so yeah, we put some of our funds in those companies and then provide them with whatever service, whatever uh, help they need in order to make them successful as well. I mean, Danny is a classical example. You know, he's in this amazing AR. I think that's going to change the way we train residents in the future. Danny's put a lot of blood, tear, and, uh, you know, into that company. He has made that a very, very successful company. We work together. We are in continuous contact. There are things he needs we provide. There are things we need that he... So there's that really great collaboration between... PSI and outside companies. You know, we don't have multi, multi millions of dollars. We are not a venture capitalist. We're basically, you know, young surgeons and people like myself that we've used our own liquidity to invest. Uh, so we're not a billion dollar cap, uh, venture capitalist, but whatever money we have, we put it into good use to try to bring in the technologies that will make a difference to patients. And you're, and you're a familiar face. I mean, think about it. What's, is it going to be better to go and see Serena and yourself and, as a doctor who's clinically practicing, who's had ideas, who's innovated versus going to a VC guy, you know, with suits in the background, trying to do a pitch deck and have them look at you cross-eyed. So it provides some familiarity for, for people to feel much more comfortable in the process. So, you know, great job, guys. I love that. As a fellow innovator and orthopreneur, you know, of, of OrthoLaser, it's nice to know that that we can find some friends that and, fam and family out there to help us be successful. Yeah, I was going to say, Scott, you will understand this landscape and how risky and how nerve wracking it is. But yet, without risks, we don't have uh, much accomplishments. There's no playbooks. And uh, every day, uh, there's going to be some success. And every day, there will be failure. Uh, as long as you move towards your solution and you have solid people around you, hopefully you will uh, get across the finish line, or I should say, the start line to, uh, to be able to have your innovation commercialized and, and be, uh, be successful across the chasm. So one of, uh, I figured we'd talk a little bit about some orthopedic stuff and, you know, you're incredibly well, you know, published. And by the way, I have to say this out loud, dude, you're, you're kind of a big deal. You actually,
actually have, I'm not sure if you know this, but you have your own Wikipedia page. Right. Do you know that? I did not know that. You have your own. So you and Rod Woodson, Hall of Famer, NFL Hall of Famer, are the only two guests of the Ortho Show that have their own Wikipedia page. <laughs> so you and your I, wife will Google it when we're done. I actually did not know that, Scott. <laughs> Uh, I wonder who's made that for me. Ah, somebody did that for you. That's how Wikipedia works. So that, but I think I knew you'd get a kick out of that for sure. Yeah. So one of the things that you've really, you know, put a big part of your career in is, is infection, right? Is really yeah. trying to identify the root causes of infection and what we can do to try and eliminate the I word from our clinical practice, if we can, you know, in, in keeping it sort of low tech, can you, can you give us some examples of where you think we're going right now as far as the state of the war against bacteria and infection? Yeah, it's amazing. Today on the flight, I was reading some papers from Nature and Cell about the state of microbiome, about how prebiotics and probiotics are going to alter the way we deal with diseases, in particular infectious diseases. Uh, we have had so many accomplishments in the field of molecular diagnostics, in particular next generation sequencing or other areas. So we are really on the verge of an evolution in the field of infectious diseases. And how we've approached infection in the past has been a very dogmatic and primitive approach. Moving into the future, it needs to be much, much more sophisticated. Other fields are ahead of us. Um, other fields like urology, neurology, even cardiothoracic, they're ahead of us in terms of their approach to how to diagnose and treat infection. But we are discovering so much about infection. In this 22-year journey I've had in learning about infection, it's been a very tumultuous journey. You know, in the beginning, everybody was um, criticizing me for wanting to study infection, a, a, a problem that didn't really exist in the beginning, or why would I pay attention to a problem that only affects 1% of the uh, patients undergoing joint replacement? We've come to realize those numbers have changed. The lives of people when they get an infection, it's, it turns upside down. It causes mortality that's very similar to prostate cancer, breast cancer. It's a terrible problem. But more importantly, we've just been throwing antibiotics at these people and getting a horrible result and putting them through multiple operations. So the young generation that are now really taking this, this uh, issue seriously are going to treat patients very, very differently. First, we're going to have a very different preventative approach than what we used to. And when or if this condition arises, they're going to treat this very differently in a few years from now. So give us some, some examples. How do you see the treatment changing uh, the paradigm? Yeah, so like the modification of surfaces. You know, one of my first patents that I, uh, that I submitted was in 2003, a modification of the implant surface to make it antimicrobial. And in those days, we were tethering antibiotics to the surface using, uh, you know, organocylane chemistry. But now there are technologies that are working on titanium with use of nanopillars, for example, nanotechnology to alter it such that bacteria can't sit on that surface. And it's very similar to like dragonfly wing apparently has these nanopillars and bacteria can never sit on the wings of these insects because of that nanopillar structure. That plus uh, alterations in the chemistry where it may be electrified or it could 
uh, have a pH uh, altering surface, which will make it hostile to bacteria to attach to that surface. And that's how infection orthopedics arises, as you know. They, imp the implant is the foreign material is a perfect place for microbes to sit and attach themselves to. And once they attach themselves, they form a biofilm, which then makes uh, the eradication of that infection almost impossible. So those are like some of the areas of what I find very fascinating. And then there are on top of that, things like antimicrobial peptides. You know, I was reading about that yesterday, antimicrobial peptides. These are like host defense mechanisms. We could employ those. We could use nature to fight nature like Staphylococcus produces an enzyme called Lugdenin that you could use that to eradicate the biofilm produced by Staph aureus. And then the list goes on, uh, but it's really fascinating. And this is mostly in other areas where majority of these uh, strides have been made. And we're just really riding on, uh, on those accomplishments. Well, Ben, you certainly don't sound like an orthopedic surgeon. That was very impressive, Jay, I got to say. I mean, it's like, but you know, there's a couple of things I love there, like like finding other things in nature, right? So like the the, the dragonfly wing, like can you can you mimic that other spot in nature and bring it in as you, as you talked about? Can you harness other areas of nature, bring it in? That's not something that, that we've really done within orthopedics. So I think there's going to have to be some cross-pollinization here across science and technology, uh, into orthopedics as well. And it's people like yourself that are going to really help us get there. So that's, you know, the numbers for infection, fortunately, are low, but still nobody, if you're the one person that gets it, it's certainly not what you want to deal with. And as a physician, helping those patients is also, you know, can be very, really very stressful. So let's go, man, all hands on deck, keep working on that stuff. We're going to hit you back up for some more information on that for sure. So as we're getting close here, Jay, you know, to finishing up, you know, I think that the, the, your, 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 stardom and innovation, I think is really important. If you could give a few pieces of, of, of commentary or advice to some of our listeners out there that would think about how they want to start into innovation, what advice would you give them? You know, I would tell them, read the uh, book by Isaac, uh, Isaacson, Walter Isaacson, fantastic book, and I'll paraphrase him. Innovation really does three things. It simplifies life, it makes it more affordable, and it changes the status quo onto the next level. That's innovation. If you can't find something that satisfies those three criteria, then it's not innovation. You know, there are so many things that uh, we're, are brought into our operating room on a daily basis. It makes the lives miserable. It makes the operation last another 20 minutes, adds a huge deal of cost to that surgery, uh, which you and I and our patients as taxpayers have to pay for these things. So simplify, simplify the life and make it better. That's all we have to do. And that's what innovation is. And innovation doesn't have to be very fancy, multi-billion dollar uh, product. It can be very simple uh, and, and identifies a gap in clinical practice and you go after it. That's what we do in PSI. We just look to see an area that has not uh, seen you know, an area in need of innovation, and we'll put our own mind and money and uh, innovate and produce that product. Yeah, no, really, really great wisdom, right? As a, as a fellow innovator in the complexity of trying to develop success, keep it simple. Great, great advice and counsel. You know, as clinicians, Jay, you know, we can only see so many patients, right? You can only 
operate on so many. And, and some of the people that I find most remarkable that we've had on the Ortho Show, like people like yourself, who really take time out, away from clinical practice to identify major issues, try and develop solutions to be able to help patients that you will never meet by improving the way in which we do things. So I, for one, am very grateful uh, for, for the hard work and energy that you put into your 22-year career here in the States and beyond. So we want to thank you very much for your time, Jay. It's been a pleasure having you here on the Ortho Show. Thank you so much, Scott. And it's a true honor and a privilege to have been part of this uh, Ortho Show. And I look forward to listening to uh, a lot of the podcasts in the future as I've been enjoying them in the past. Thank you for everything you do for us as well, Scott. Oh, thank you, Jay. This is Dr. Scott Sigmund, hashtag follow the fro host of the ortho show till next time.